Merry Christmas, Center Church. Good to see all of all y'all. I'm uh, so glad that you're here. Uh, uh, I, anything I do feels less profound <laughs> than that video and the scripture and the music. So uh, here I am. Good to see all of you. I'm glad that you're here. This is, this is me. Uh, but I'm so thankful. Seriously, as I look around the room, look at those of you joining us online, just the fact that we get to celebrate Christmas together is really, really special. And uh, for me, these couple weeks, I mean, December is just an awesome month because uh, not only do I get material possessions, which blesses my heart from my family, um, and I'm still very greedy in that way, but I, it also is a time, seriously, to to get together with family. And there's some people, even we're, we're celebrating family Christmas down in Indiana this afternoon you read that right. Um, I'm still physically here somehow, but uh, we're celebrating that later today. And I'm getting to see some people I haven't seen in a decade, like some cousins and extended family uh, who are from Louisiana and didn't even know Indiana exists. Like no idea that it's, there's places where people live that are cold and there's snow, just no idea. So from the bayou to Fort Wayne, uh, it's going to be exciting. So it's interesting because uh, it's like in this month, really, there's like this kind of feeling like this elf, buddy, the elf feeling that everyone should kind of be happy and cheery and, and things shouldn't go wrong. And I was feeling that way um, up until last Saturday. I was feeling uh, my Christmas cheer meter was through the roof. I was excited about Christmas, uh, but it was Saturday morning and I was headed to the gym. It was I had an eight o'clock gym class. I'm not in high school, but like a class I wanted to wa voluntarily go to at 8 a.m. Uh, so I'm on my way there. And I think I've got a podcast or music on or something. I'm not paying attention. I was going down a road. I go down all the time, like every, almost every single week. I'm going down this main road. And at this point, I've driven it so much, I have no idea what the speed limit is, which you already know the story's ending, right? I just had no idea. I've driven uh, for the last 14 years, record-free, no tickets, nothing. But I'm just totally unaware and, and it's still a little bit dark. It's not quite eight o'clock. I'm on my way and I'm, I'm already running behind. And so I, I'm driving faster than normal. But again, I'm not watching the speedometer. I'm not watching the road signs that say speed limit this. Like I'm not doing any of that. I'm just driving. I'm in my zone. I'm trying to get there on time. And so I do. Uh, I, I'm like maybe a mile or two away from the gym. And, and I see these headlights behind me. And I thought, you know what? I'm a, I know some things about cars, all right? I don't know how to fix them, but I know what, how to identify them. So I'm seeing this, and I'm saying to myself, there's no way that's a Ford Explorer. Those don't look like Ford Explorer headlights. That's literally the, the inner dialogue that's happening. And then I see a second set of lights that just emerge. And I'm like, I know what that is now. That's, that's a police officer, and he's coming for me. He's getting closer and closer. And I, so I'm totally oblivious and I pull over and I had the license and registration in my hands already. I'm like, I know I'm guilty. I, I was not looking. I have no idea. He's like, do you know why I pulled you over? I'm like, why do you have a Southern accent? That's weird. But uh, <laughs> I thought you were from Wyoming, Michigan. Anyway, so, so we have this conversation. I'm like, yes, I'm assuming I'm speeding. He's like, you know how fast? I'm like, no idea. I was not looking, not paying attention. So he writes me a ticket. I now have my first speeding ticket. It's depressing. One night in jail later, though, it was all over. Uh, we're good now. <laughs> me, and the, me and the police are square. We're good. But it's funny because I, I don't, I mean, some of you have more speeding tickets than kids. But all that said... Uh, all that said is what's interesting about human nature, and you may know where I'm going with this, like you get a speeding ticket 
I think it was maybe two miles down the road. I'm speeding again. I'm just like, I, I see he turns off in a side street. I'm like, all right, I got to get there on time. Pedal to the metal, baby. My 2005 RAV4 is cranking down Clyde Park Avenue. I was just crushing it. I probably got, could have got another ticket. I don't know. I didn't care at that point. But what's interesting is, is that how, when you face hard things in your life, that's exactly how 99% of us interact with them. You get stopped by something. Maybe it's a diagnosis or it's an affair or it's a tough moment with a, parent, with a, with a kid or it's a financial situation or, or a job loss or transition. You get stopped. You're in park. The, the, the lights are flashing behind you. And so many of us hit those moments, even at Christmas, we hit those moments and then we start speeding all over again. We don't change anything. We don't learn anything. We don't grow through anything. We don't allow God to shape us in a different way. Like we face what biblical writers would describe as suffering or trials or tribulations. We face tough moments and all of us do. And maybe right now you're in one, you're feeling the weight of being in one. And all of us have a chance in those moments to either learn and grow and surrender more to Jesus or become more self-centered, more independent, and more reliant on our own power and will. We're going to talk about suffering today. And this is like the last thing on my list of Christmas topics I want to be preaching about today. But over and over again, just even this week, conversations with people just like you, and even like as our team planned this service together, just felt like God was affirming and God wanted to say some of these things. And so through a very broken, uh, imperfect lens, I'm going to try to communicate what I think he wants us to hear. What I want you to hear though, is you may sit here and, and you're in a stage of life that's really good and you're excited for this Christmas. Your whole family's getting together. It's going to be great. And, and you would say, I'm not really suffering in my life. Can I ask you a secondary question then? Are you experiencing anything in your life that you do not want? Anything in your life you don't want, anything in your life you feel out of control about, that, if you look at the scripture story, is what suffering is. It's being in situations you cannot control and you likely would have not chosen. Now, as you look at the genealogy of Jesus, this incredible list of broken characters and broken families that God redeems and restores and uses to point us to his kingdom, now, two of the names that pop off the page for me are actually two more women. Two more women we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, uh, I'm going to bet my life you do not have these underlined or circled. And so maybe today's the first day you do that. Let's go to Matthew 1. And, and in verse 5, here's what we read. As you kind of track through this genealogy, uh, the gospel writer Matthew's giving us to point to something greater. Here are some of the names he lists and right in the, the first paragraph there. Salmon, the father of Boaz, which is funny enough, whose mother was Rahab. Name number one. He keeps going. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Two, two names here. And then later that translates down to Jesse, who eventually gives way to King David, who eventually, as you track through the rest of his genealogy, gives way to King Jesus. As you look at this genealogy, and we're going to explore these two women's stories just real briefly this morning, and you can read the rest of it in the different parts of the Old Testament. But here's what I want us to know. And here, if you look through Matthew's genealogy, these are not the only names that, that affirm this truth. But, but the most important thing you can remember about suffering is that God does things in suffering that he won't do anywhere else. And that is a hard <laughs> Christmas 21 truth. I just want to say it again. God does things 
in the darkest, hardest, most backwards, out of control moments of your life that he won't do anywhere else. It's actually in the situations that you wish you could control and that you would say, I didn't choose this. I don't want this. I don't like this. That if we surrender them to God and we actually get quiet long enough to listen to his voice speak to us, that we experience the deepest change and transformation. I mean, this is, what I'm saying is literally Rahab's story. Rahab was a Canaanite woman, literally an outsider of outsiders. Not only was the Canaanite nation like enemies of God, they were constantly at war with people like the Israelites, but Rahab's story, as you dig in, you can find this in Joshua chapter two. I'd encourage you to go back and read it. But in Joshua two, literally you find that Rahab lived on the outside of the outside of the city. Like her, her house, her window is a great view of a wall. Like it just backs up to the, she is on the outside of the outside. Not only was Rahab, who's found in this ge- genealogy, a Canaanite, so she's not Israelite. She's not part of God's covenant people originally, but she's a woman, which we've talked about low status in this society. And as you go farther, farther back in history, women get lower and lower in their status. And it's actually Matthew here in the genealogy is elevating the role of women and elevating how, how women have played a crucial role in this story of God throughout history. She was not just a Canaanite, not just a woman. Her vocation was probably not one you would want uh, your kid to take up anytime soon. She had run out of every single economic option for her in her city and had ended up saying, the only way I can secure finances and resources for my family is to, is to sell my body. And so that's what she did over and over and over again, person after person, just constantly at the, at the mercy of other people. It, it's so bad. Her story is so dark that actually Jewish tradition hundreds of years later have tried to kind of whitewash what she actually did for a vocation. You can find like hundreds of years of Jewish literature that talks about Rahab, not as a prostitute, but as an innkeeper or a hostile keeper, because they are so embarrassed. These are not people you want in your family tree. But what happens through through Rahab's story, see, God was using her in a divine way. God uses her story because uh, the Israelite people know they have promised land to conquer and Jericho, the city, is kind of in the way. It's part of the, one of the strongest Canaanite cities. And so Joshua, who's a really smart leader, he's a courageous guy. He says, you know what? We're going to send two spies to do some recon and figure out what's going on in the city. How easy will it be to overtake? So he sends these spies in. And somehow, we don't know exactly how. Now, knowing Rahab's vacation, vocation, it makes you curious. But two guys end up outside her house. Two of these spies end up outside of Rahab's house. And multiple things happen, but eventually what God uses Rahab to do is to redirect the Canaanite army and, and the leaders and officials away from these two spies so that Israel can come in and eventually invade and conquer the city. It's an incredible story full of multiple plot twist. But you can picture if you are Rahab in this moment, and you know that your city is about to be invaded, and you know that these people follow a holy God who probably doesn't like what you do for a living, you are in a position of suffering now, where your, your nation and security is in the balance, hanging by a thread. Your vocation is obviously not helping you to to get welcomed into this Israelite family if they do overtake you and if they spare your life. And and yet God uses her, and you can read just the the details of the story in Joshua 2. God uses her by putting out the simple 
piece of red cloth. And eventually they, they get in and they do the recon and eventually Jericho's overtaken and becomes an Israelite stronghold. But Rahab and her family are spared in this story because here's what I really believe, that God does things in suffering he won't do anywhere else. He actually uses Rahab as part of his family tree. Story number two in this, in this short verse that Matthew gives is the story of Ruth. Some of you know Ruth. Some of you study the book or maybe you've read the book before. It's four short chapters. But in Ruth, we find a very similar set of circumstances. Ruth is a woman, you guessed it. But second, Ruth is a part of the Moabite nation. And if you read the Old Testament over and over again, what you find is that the Moabites were literally described as sworn enemies of God. They were like the opposite of Israel. They were not the kind of people that Israelite people would have said, man, I hope God redeems the Moabites someday. Like it just didn't cross their mind. They hated them. And yet in a weird turn of events, Ruth ends up marrying an Israelite man who eventually passes away. And so she finds herself as a Moabite woman who now has no husband, which no husband is not just a sad story. It is, but it's a story of someone who has become financially insecure, who's now trying to find her way in this world with this nation of Israel at the time was in complete disarray. I mean, the book of Judges is kind of the timeline. We find Ruth's story. And in, Ruth, in, in Judges, it talks about the fact that Israel was in a place of absolute moral chaos. Like they were falling apart. They had appointed leaders instead of God being their leader, and it had gone sideways. Shocker to no one in America 2021, right? Like, it's just, it's like, yeah, that's what happens when we put other people above God's wisdom and his leadership. And so they're not only in disarray, she's financially insecure to add an insane layer to the story. And this is almost hard to believe. Ruth was a Moabite. Guess who her dad and grandfather were? Moabites in the top leadership elite. They are people who are literally in active campaigns against Israelite people. She finds herself in this foreign nation with no husband as a woman, probably asking, why? Why me? I'm, I'm, I've tried to do every single thing right. I even married into like the opposite nation. Like here I am all by myself. I would describe Ruth's story, all of the chapters in it before God redeems the story as pure suffering. Situations she did not want and situations she could not control. As you read through the story though, God was writing a better story. God was doing something behind the scenes. In fact, God is not specifically really ever mentioned in the book of Ruth which is interesting because you'd read the Bible and think these are stories about God and people, <laughs> like what God did through ordinary people. But in Ruth's story, you can barely find any mention of who God is. And most biblical scholars and researchers, and I would totally agree with this, believe that, that the writers of Ruth are trying to communicate that God is at work behind the scenes, that God is always writing the story of redemption, that even in the midst of suffering, he does things he won't do anywhere else. It's, it's an incredible story. She ends up being redeemed uh, by this faithful courageous, young, faithful, courageous young man named Boaz, who takes her up as his wife as part of kind of this Israelite custom or tradition where if your brother lost, if you're, uh, sorry, your sister-in-law lost your brother as a husband, whether he passed away or something happened in war, your responsibility as the next brother up would be to take her as your wife. And that sounds very weird and patriarchal and odd, especially to us sitting here in Byron Center, Michigan. It's like, ah, uh, my brother doesn't want that. And my sister-in-law definitely does not want that. No, thank you. 
Like I'll, I'll pass. I will live as a, I will figure it out on my own. But in this society, just like we've said over the last few weeks, I mean, this leaves Ruth at incredible risk, liability. I mean, think of the people who'd want to take advantage of a situation like this. And so Boaz steps up and because, becomes what the scriptures describe as a kinsman redeemer. And the beautiful part about the story, it actually ends, ironically, with the genealogy. If you read Ruth 4, one of the last things written in this short story is actually, actually a genealogy proving how Ruth connects all the way to King David, who eventually gives way to King Jesus. It's like Matthew's trying to remind us that God is always at work behind the scenes, that he does things in suffering he won't do anywhere else. Now, I said this message is kind of ironic, and it, it is for a bunch of reasons. But number one, I'm like finishing up kind of last minute. Typically Saturdays, I kind of look over my sermon, just make sure everything's fine-tuned. Sundays, I pray over it, I rehearse it, and then I give it. Well, Saturday, Lin Lindsay and I discovered something on the bottom of Lennon's teeth that redirected my entire day. Any guesses? It was a tooth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which if you have kids in your past, it may be hard for some of you to remember, but or if you have kids in that stage right now, uh, that is human suffering. That <laughs> To watch that and to have to parent through that is awful. I do not like it. She's not even here today because I want to spare all of you from the wrath of Lennon's bottom gum. Like, it's just, it's not good. She is not happy. She did not sleep well the last couple of nights, which means I did not sleep well the last couple of nights. Uh, it's just, it is intense suffering. It's hard to watch. Not only as a parent, your heart breaks for your kid. But as a kid, she can't express. She doesn't know why. She doesn't know what's happening. That is different when it comes to our Heavenly Father. See, I, I can only do so much for her. I can freeze her pacifier. I can do all the things. I can make it try to feel better. I can feed her mashed avocado until she spits it back out of me. Like I can do all the things you're supposed to do as a parent. But our Heavenly Father, I don't really even know fully what Lena needs. Think how much more in Rahab and Ruth's story was God knowing it. God knew exactly what they needed. How much more do he, does he do that for you? It's just the right time. God brings that moment of clarity or, or wisdom or just the right time. You thought, I don't have the money. I don't know where it's coming from. Checks in the mail. Deposit happens. Just the right time. You think, I've gone to every single doctor and gotten every single negative diagnosis I can possibly get, and something shifts and changes, and you go back, and they're like, I don't know where that is anymore. Those aren't made-up stories. Those are stories that you have told. Th those are stories that we as a church can, can testify to, and the beauty of, of suffering is that God does not just pluck us out and try to make everything better. He actually, if you look at the story of Scripture over and over again, whether it's Job sitting with his friends and they're sitting there trying to figure out, well, this is why you're suffering. You're bad uh, or you were good. You did something bad. So God is punishing you. That's what suffering is. Or, or it's Jesus in the garden saying, not my will, but yours be done. And he's in this intense suffering or disciples who get persecuted. Peter hung upside down. Like all of that stuff. It's not because God just wants to pluck us out of the world. It's actually that he wants to do something in this world that is so beyond and so mysterious that often it's hard for us to grasp because we want simple, neat, clean formulas for it. And that's not what scripture gives us. Over and over, it gives us that the hope of suffering is that God does things and transforms things and frees things 
and creates and, and starts things that he won't do anywhere else. And as a regular human person, just like you, I don't love that. <laughs> I would love a, a neat formula. I would love to be good my whole life and that mean only good things happen. Or if you're bad, expect bad things happen to you. But th that's not the scripture story. That's not Ruth or Rahab's story. I stumbled across this story uh, that actually resonates with some of your own stories, ironically, uh, a, a couple weeks ago. It's a story of a couple named Joy and Clive. They lived in Europe at the time, and it, they got married in 1956. In 1956, just a couple years later, Joy, his, Clive's wife, gets diagnosed with a rare form of bone cancer. And in this, obviously, it's painful. It's hard. Think about the fact that this is 1960. The cancer tech is not quite where it is today. There, there's the difficult treatments, difficult procedures. And so Joy has this conversation with Clive knowing that she doesn't know how much time she has left. She said, I would love to go to Greece. Can we fly to Greece? Not knowing if, how many years left, just knowing that we want to seize the moment. We want to take advantage of this. And despite the suffering, they save up the money. They organize a trip and down to Greece they go. Well, a few weeks later, they return home from Greece. It's a great trip. A few weeks later, Joy's cancer aggressively takes over her body, and she ends up passing away four years after they were married. Now, that story is sad enough, but what it does to Clive is, is hard. I mean, if you've faced that or you have a family member who's faced that, you get how, how cancer just rapidly taking someone is incredibly difficult to watch. It is a pure and sad form of human suffering. And so Clive does what he was good at, what he was used to doing. He sits down and he begins to write. He begins to journal. He begins to process not only his emotions, but his thoughts about what has happened to his now late wife. And we know Clive as C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote this in his reflections upon his wife passing away. He says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, God does things in suffering he won't do anywhere else. That's the beauty of the whole scripture story, though, as you track through, I mean, Jesus his life, his ministry, his eventual death, his resurrection and ascension, uh, Jesus still has the nail scars in his hands, which is a reminder to all of us that we serve a suffering Savior. Some theologians describe Jesus in this way as a wounded healer. Others have described him as the great Redeemer, not, not just because he fixed all of our problems, but he felt all of our problems and still was able to redeem and save and rescue and restore us to that beautiful original identity he always had for us. I mean, what's interesting is if you track through Ruth, something I look for in the scriptures is words that repeat themselves. Guess what word shows up 23 different times in Ruth's story? Redemption, over and over and over again. It's like God is writing this beautiful story in the midst of intense suffering. As I look back uh, over my last couple of weeks even, just kind of looking at my last month, I'm not facing right now intense physical suffering or intense financial suffering. Uh, I got a glimpse of some of what that could feel like when we got COVID as a family, all three of us. 
Like we're sitting there and, and we're sitting there on our couch and our daughter's crying. Lindsay and I just want to break out crying because it's like you're stuck at home in the worst moment of your life when all I want to do is like go to Chipotle. Shocker to no one. Like I just, I wanted to go out. I wanted to do something. I wanted to be out. But it was this moment, honestly, for me of God turning the mirror in on myself and addressing some, some things that I didn't like about myself. Things like, John, how much of your spiritual life is tied up in what you do? John, how much of your relationship with me hinges on whether you can preach a good sermon or not, lead a good service or not, have a good conversation or not? How much of that is propped up by what you're doing? And in the midst of that kind of short period of suffering, situation I didn't want, situation I couldn't control, God began to work and serve some things that I really believe next year, I'm going to spiritually be better for it. I would have not faced those difficult moments and those conversations and those opportunities to surrender to Jesus had I not gone through that. I don't wish that upon any of you. I don't wish that upon anyone in our world. I pray for a miraculous end to this insane pandemic that's gone for so long. I, I'm, that's where I'm at. But even despite that, I have met people who either go through seasons like that or things like cancer or death of a loved one or a difficult situation with a prodigal child who say, you know what, as weird and mysterious and I don't really get it as it sounds, I'm glad that happened. I'm glad because God has a way of doing things and suffering he won't do anywhere else. This is a weird question to ask you the week of Christmas, but here's the question I want to leave you with. This question from spiritual writer Parker Palmer who says, what is the one of the most important questions you can ask in your life as a, as a follower of Jesus is what is your life trying to say to you? Or are you just moving through life on, on cruise control, speeding without ever stopping to realize what you're doing, getting stopped even, a moment of crisis, a moment of suffering, a surgery, a lost loved one, and are you just breezing through it and not ever addressing what's really happening under the surface, the real work God wants to do? What is your life trying to say to you? If I'm brutally honest, the thing that comes to my mind at the end of this question is the enormous opportunity for people who are suffering in our community to experience Jesus this Christmas. Now, I'm a pastor. You all expect me to say that. That's like the pastoral answer. But honestly, I've had conversation after conversation these last couple of weeks as we explored and challenged ourselves to see 200 names represented here at Christmas, uh, to hear the gospel. Just conversation after conversation that just affirms that's what God wants to do. The harvest is so ripe. The question again is not, can you see that, but will you? Will you let God challenge and stretch you and help you to take some relational risk? I know some of you in this room, you are incredible inviters. If you took 10 of these invite cards, you, every single one of those people would come because you're that like relational magnet. Others of you are like me. It's like way harder to do it. And you're introverted. And it's like, how do I even bring this up? All I did was order this or, or drop this person off or meet this person for a meeting. Like, how do I even do that? The, the sad part is I'm not going to tell you how. I don't even know how. It's just like the Holy Spirit doesn't. You just listen and make it happen. But, but those 200 people, those 200 stories, the names, the family members, the, the coworkers, the friends, what would happen in their life if even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of suffering they may be walking through, someone like you took a risk and stepped out and invited them to Christmas Eve? It's Friday night. Like If you did that, what, what would happen in your life? Well, chances are 
not only would th- that person be changed or affected or at least be aware, but, but God would begin to do things in your life as well. That's even why like this Christmas, this Friday, because of just your generosity over the years, uh, we're able to give 100% of what we get at Christmas Eve away to three specific outreach partners. People like Hand to Hand, people like Hope Unexpected, people uh, like Oreo Park, this school that we've partnered with intentionally over the years to, to try to minister and serve. As we prepare to give to that this Friday, that, this is what I think about. There are people on the other side of what we'll give this weekend who, who are suffering, who are in situations they don't want and cannot control. And if they had an intersection with the great redeemer, with the wounded healer, with the suffering savior, life would be different. Life would be significantly better and more rich and fulfilling, not because God would just rapture them out of it, but because he would do things in it. And so I wanna pray for us and and for just that challenge for this weekend, knowing that the next time we're together, as we celebrate, as we see God, as we just enjoy the, the Christmas message and the Christmas season, that there are people between right now and then who God may be stirring, who God may be working on, who you need to to be bold and step out and say, you know what, I'm not gonna let my personality or my reputation get in the way. I'm just gonna go for it. And there are people, literally, I'm looking around this room, there are people who are sitting here because someone did that for them, because someone stepped out of their box, because someone said, you know what, this is weird, this is not like me, but you wanna go to Christmas? And to be honest, whether they reject you or not is not the point. The point is, will we be obedient to listen and to obey and do what God is asking us to do? That's the question. So can I pray for, you, for us and then we're gonna worship and, and lift Jesus up together. God, we just thank you for, uh, for this time. We thank you that in the midst of just the craziness of our world, the midst of Christmas parties and schedules, the midst of final work projects, a mix of year-end accounting issues and all the other things that we may be facing in our own lives. That you step in and you remind us what Christmas has always been about. That it's always been about a God who just like Blake said, who steps into our world, who takes on our, our own skin and bones, becomes one of us to show us that there's a better way to show us that this life is not all there is, that you actually have a way of redeeming and restoring things that we thought were broken and dead and far gone. In those moments, you become literally to us, Emmanuel, God with us, God in our midst. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your redemptive work. We thank you for the names that we hold these invite cards immediately come to our mind. And God, we pray that you'd stir us into that truth and that reality. Uh, this Christmas season. We love you and surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen.